It's a perfect Monday in early October at the University of Texas, and the South Mall on campus is a beautiful place to be. A vast green lawn slopes down from the UT Tower, lined by giant oak trees that frame a view of the state capitol and downtown Austin. A statue of George Washington stands at the top of the green, and at the bottom of the hill, an elaborate fountain marks the southern boundary of the mall. Students are hustling between classes in what they call the six-pack, the half-dozen buildings that line the green, three on each side. And the lawn is full of people, talking, studying, or just lying on the grass enjoying the day. On a day like today, it's easy to forget that until quite recently, the South Mall was home to a controversial piece of UT history. But this little patch of ground has played an important role in a major conversation taking place at UT and around the country about Confederate memorials. That's because of the statues that stood here until August of 2017. There were six statues, all of men and mostly Confederate veterans. Those statues had been controversial pretty much since they were first commissioned in 1916, but in recent years they became the focus of especially intense organized protest. In 2015, a racist mass shooting took place in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. In the aftermath of that event, the University of Texas took steps towards dismantling its Confederate memorials. Two of the statues were removed, and two years later, after white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville, the university removed the remaining statues. Today, just George Washington and the Littlefield Fountain remain. The only evidence that anything else was ever here are the pedestals that used to support the statues. They are now covered in plastic, awaiting whatever comes next for them. So, the long debate over what to do with UT's Confederate statues seems to have finally come to an end. Mostly. But as UT is finding, once the statues come down, the story isn't over. Instead, there's a whole new set of questions. What should be done with those statues? Where do they belong? How do we make sense of their value? And what can they tell us about the past? And what should happen with the spaces where they used to stand? We'll be exploring those questions on this episode of Death and Numbers, a podcast created by the Humanities Media Project and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The answers will take us deep into UT's archives and out onto a walking tour of the campus as we meet some of the people invested in the afterlife of UT's Confederate statues. I'm Caroline Pinkston. The options, the options seem to be that you can leave them in place, uh, that you can leave them in place and add plaques. You can um, remove them and put them in a museum setting, or you can remove them and just preserve them. That's Ben Wright, the Associate Director for Communication at UT's Dolph Briscoe Center for American History. The Briscoe Center is a renowned archive and research center that houses millions of documents, records, manuscripts, photographs, all kinds of objects. It's been a treasure trove for researchers for many years. But since August of 2015, the Briscoe Center has been tasked with doing something that is still relatively uncharted territory, providing an appropriate home to the Confederate statues removed from the South Mall. We asked ourselves what, what sort of questions we want the exhibit to answer, and they were, why is the statue here? Um, why did, was it built at UT in the first place, and what changed in between? And that's, um, so those were the sort of three questions that concerned us. The answers to those questions start with a man named George Littlefield. In the early 20th century, Littlefield was on UT's Board of Regents and was one of the university's most important benefactors. 
He was also a Confederate veteran who had already been involved in creating Confederate memorials at the Texas Capitol building. In 1916, Littlefield commissioned a sculptor named Pompeo Capini to create a massive bronze arch at the entrance to the South Mall. The arch would feature a statue of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, surrounded by four other men, Robert E. Lee and Albert Sidney Johnston, both leaders in the Confederate Army, John H. Reagan, the postmaster general of the Confederacy, and James Stephen Hogg, the 20th governor of Texas. Over the next several years, this original vision was revised many times. Eventually, the whole idea of an arch was replaced with a plan to arrange the statues around a fountain. And importantly, a statue of Woodrow Wilson was added to the mix. Wilson's addition might seem strange in a memorial to Confederates, but the change signals the way Littlefield's original plan was reimagined as a sort of hybrid memorial to both the Civil War and World War I. As Capini ultimately designed it, the fountain and the statues would symbolize the reconciling of differences between North and South through the shared experience of the First World War. But that reconciliatory theme never replaced the underlying message of Confederate glory. An inscription to the west of the fountain made that clear. It dedicated the memorial, quote, to the men and women of the Confederacy, who fought with valor and suffered with fortitude that states' rights be maintained, and who, not dismayed by defeat nor discouraged by misrule, builded from the ruins of the devastating war a greater south. Littlefield never saw the statues built. He died in 1920. The plans for the South Mall Memorial went forward without him, according to the instructions left in his will. But it wasn't installed until 1933, and in the end it looked quite different than what Littlefield had originally envisioned, or Capini for that matter. The Littlefield Fountain at the far end of the South Mall featured Columbia, the goddess of liberty, sailing out across the waters of Europe to World War I, accompanied by the U.S. Army and Navy. At the far north end of the mall, twin statues of Jefferson Davis and Woodrow Wilson flanked the steps to the UT Tower. The four remaining statues of Lee, Johnston, Reagan, and Hogg were arranged along the South Mall. Once the statues were separated like this, it was easy to forget that they were all originally part of one work. And over the next 80 years, it was increasingly easy to forget about them altogether. But not everyone forgot. Various groups have demanded the removal of some or all of the statues many times, especially since the 1990s, with varying levels of support and intensity. There have been hunger strikes, episodes of vandalism, petitions, letters to the editor, and town hall meetings. And in response, the university has convened committees, endlessly debated whether to keep or remove the statues or add explanatory plaques, and added other statues around campus of civil rights icons to balance or dilute the effect of the Confederates. But through all that, the Confederates stayed. That changed in 2015. In May of that year, a new student government was elected on a platform that called for the removal of the Jefferson Davis statue. That campaign was already underway when a white supremacist murdered nine African Americans in a church in Charleston. The massacre brought a new level of urgency to a national conversation about Confederate symbols, and the effects were felt at UT, too. Within a week of the shooting, the Confederate statues on UT's campus were spray-painted with the words, Black Lives Matter. A petition that circulated to remove the statues gathered signatures quickly, and a task force was formed by UT President Greg Finves to study the issue over the summer of 2015. In August, the task force put forward a series of recommendations to President Finves, stating clearly that, quote, doing nothing was not a viable option. 
Finally, Fenves announced that two statues would be removed, Jefferson Davis and Woodrow Wilson. Davis would go because of his Confederate ties. Wilson, on the other hand, would be removed for the purposes of symmetry, since the two statues flanked the steps leading to the tower. The Wilson statue alone was not especially controversial, so it could be relocated to another part of campus. Davis, however, was to be rehoused in a space that could appropriately contextualize the statue in an educational setting. That space was the Briscoe Center. I think as soon as the student movement to have the statues removed gained the serious momentum it needed after the Charleston shooting, that we started almost immediately having conversations about how, you know, we had the capabilities to to house the statues uh, and to provide an educational setting for them rather than a commemorative setting. The idea that Confederate statues belong somewhere where they can be appropriately contextualized has been a common refrain in other communities across the country. But UT is one of the first places to really do it. And as Ben Wright points out, that's partly because the archival holdings at the Briscoe Center make it easy to tell the story in a level of detail that you can't easily get in other places. For example, we've got the papers of Capini who commissioned the statue, who uh, sculpted the statue. Uh, papers of Littlefield who commissioned it, papers of the university where it's housed. That means we've got the faculty building committee minutes that talked about the location um, and just the general layout of campus. We've got other records. We work with the Alexander Architecture Archive to get some of Paul Cray's original um, renderings of the redesign of the statue, of of the monument, things like that. So, So it was pretty quick to identify the various archival collections we would use to um, to enhance the educational exhibit. Because what we could have done is put the statue up, um, put a description next to it about why it's here, and um, and left it at that. And actually, some Confederate monuments will probably have to look like that in museum settings because they may not have the same sort of archival resources that we do to tell the story. Wright and his team spent over a year digging through the available archival holdings. Ultimately, they arrived at an exhibit that was divided into six sections, which chronicled the life of the statue. These sections correspond to display cases, which were laid out in a row in the Briscoe Center's exhibit hall, each full of letters and photographs and invoices and meeting notes. You've got, um, we, you know, we've got letters, um, typewritten, handwritten letters. We've got uh, newspapers, photographs, um, material, culture items, i.e. the statue. Um, and then, um, and yes, then we've also got tweets and Facebook posts and um, uh, video content from um, the task force forums. Um, so yeah, you know we've got invoices from um, bronze works. Um, it really uses a very sort of a, just a diverse range of of actual archival matter, if you like. Altogether, these documents shed light on the networks of people and logistics and materials and money that exist behind the construction or ultimately the removal of a statue like this one. But it was the statue itself that really determined the layout of the exhibit. We always knew that that because of the weight of the statue, we knew that it was going to be um, housed where it was housed, Um, that it would face outwards, um, and and that it would therefore be in the exhibit hall rather than the exhibit gallery, um, which is a 
14-foot-wide corridor. So it's quite a wide corridor, but nevertheless, it meant we were always going to have a tall and skinny exhibit rather than a, than, 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 than a squatter or a more circular exhibit. That matters because the shape of the exhibit determines the way visitors can move through the space. In a circular hall, visitors might move from one display to the next at will, kind of taking in the story in pieces or skipping parts altogether. Here, visitors can still do what they want. As Ben Wright told me, there's no test at the end, so you can skip if you want to. But the narrow hallway encourages you to walk from one section to the next to read the story in order. And you can't get to the statue without walking through the historical context first. It's a layered story, but a linear one. And it all leads up to the statue at the end. The statue is huge. You can really tell how big it is in the space of a hallway. The open air of the South Mall made it seem smaller somehow, but here it towers over you. And that's fitting, because maybe the most important decision that Wright and his team made was to focus this exhibit on the statue itself. It is an exhibit about an archival object, the history of an archival object, or I should say history of an object that is now an archival object. It's been downgraded culturally, essentially, from an object of commemoration to just just a piece of material culture in an archive. Um, A very significant piece of that. Making the exhibit about the statue might seem like an obvious choice, but it's actually one of the central questions at play in the afterlife of these objects. When UT says it wants to place the statues in their appropriate educational context, which context is the right one? Is the point to tell the story of the statues themselves, who built them and when and why? Or to tell the story of the men who are memorialized here? Who is Jefferson Davis, for example, and why is he controversial today? Or should we really be telling the story of white supremacy, what these statues represented in terms of race relations to the men who built them and the students who walked by them every day? Of course, these strands are deeply intertwined. But if you're trying to turn a Confederate statue into an object with educational value, you have to grapple with which of these strands to focus on or how best to show their relationship. There are people who would have preferred a more... um, um, I guess almost a more thematic exhibit where we just looked at the various issues around Confederate statue and spoke to those um, rather than a chronological um, exhibit. Um, and part, I think part of the defense as to why we made that choice is that it, it, a, it's quite a powerful story on its own that is um, um, more sort of interesting than we, we I guess we were surprised at how interesting these statues are <laughs> not right. um, they're they're not just interesting because they're controversial they're actually quite interesting as objects that were made and disputed and argued about and paid for and moved um, so uh, but then the other side of it is um, telling that story actually creates these platforms, multiple platforms, to have discussions about the more uh, immediate um, um, vitriolic and um, and controversial aspects of it. For example, people, you know, this this idea of the myth of permanency that statues convey, you know, some of the evidence we have on display refutes that, just flat out refutes it. in not a pr- provocative way, but in a very assertive, matter-of-fact way. And it's the same with um, the mobility, the idea that these statues have always been in one place. They, they haven't. They've, they move. They're actually quite easily moved. 
For Wright, thinking closely about the statues as material objects and digging through the archive isn't a way of dodging the larger issues that the statues represent. It's a way into thinking about those issues. The archival evidence, the physical evidence of the statues themselves, Wright talked to me about the process of cleaning 80 years of pigeon poop off of Jefferson Davis, all of that adds complexity and depth to this story. But of course, zooming in so closely does mean other things are comparatively hidden from view. For one thing, there's the other statues. In August of 2017, after the white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville, the university removed the rest of the statues from Littlefield's commission overnight. But only Davis is on display at the Briscoe Center. The rest, for now at least, are in storage. And the full exhibit that Wright and his team worked on was only designed to stay up through Christmas of 2017. Now it's collapsed into a smaller exhibit with a digital component, although Davis will remain on display. Maybe the larger issue, though, is getting people to engage with the story that the Briscoe Center has unearthed. Even when the exhibit was up in its expanded form, it was hardly crowded. Um, I think those who keep up with the issues and intended to see it probably have by now. Um, And um, people still stop and look at it on the way to the reading room. and um, classes still come to visit. We have, um, and so, um, um, I'm, it, I mean, you can see how many people are out there now. It's not, you know, there's, it's not Franklin's barbecue. Um, <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I think, and, and my prediction is that the issue will uh, resurface and the interest in UT's handling of the situation will peak again, and the interest in the Briscoe Center's exhibit will peak again. That's not out of keeping with the history of UT's Confederate statues, actually. They've been lightning rods for controversy, and there have been periods of time when they were very much in the spotlight. But they've also spent plenty of time being overlooked, too, by students who didn't know who they represented, or maybe just didn't notice them at all. You know, that's one of the interesting things about photographs of the statue we have. They usually have someone leaning against them and studying, or, you know, there are, you, there, we have, weren't able to find photographs of students really looking at them and thinking hard about historical issues. Right, right. They were, they right. were, they were um, the, the evidence suggests they were mostly ignored by students. Right. Dr. Edmund Gordon knows very well how easy it is for students to walk around the UT campus without really being aware of the history of their surroundings. He spent the last 20 years working to change that. Most people don't really have a really good grasp of of history of US or Texas history either. So for example, from the students to the adults I take on the tour, a lot of them don't know, you know, why we've got a street in a dorm named after San Jacinto. So that's basic Texas history. People, they don't know, or they've heard of it, or, or when we got to the places where we talk about, well, the Confederate flag that flies, or used to fly up until three weeks ago on campus, they can't recognize it because it's not what they're used to. So people, you know, they don't, part of their inability to read things is they don't have enough of the references necessary to be able to do so. So that's, that's part of why this is about pedagogy, is to, 
give people the references necessary to understand or give meaning to what it is that they're seeing or experiencing or passing through. Dr. Gordon is the chair of the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies at UT. Since the 1990s, he's been on the front lines of the struggle surrounding Confederate monuments and memorials at UT and around Austin. He's been named to just about every task force or working group UT's ever had about statues or buildings named after Confederates. He's also a member of the Austin Independent School Board, where he's been leading the charge to rename Austin schools that are named after Confederates. But for Dr. Gordon, it's never been just about the statues or the names. It's been about broader issues of equity and inclusion and justice at UT, and he's fought to keep those broader issues at the center of the conversation. Because of that, it wasn't Dr. Gordon's first choice to take the statues down. Instead, he would have liked to see them used to start conversations about UT's history. Now, my particular, my involvement in these conversations about the statues, I always try to keep well within the context of the issues of the racial politics of the university mm-hmm. and gender politics for that matter as mm-hmm. well. And so my, um, my recommendation to the group in 2015, to the Simpkins group and whenever that was, and to the Powers uh, Committee uh, before that about the statues was um, basically a recommendation that the statues remain in place and that they be both contextualized after all, this is supposed to be a university, and this is there's an issue of pedagogy here that they be worn as a as a scarlet letter by the university as a means of uh, kind of talking about the the past and what the the racial past of the university was, and as a means of uh, the university accepting responsibility for that racial past. Uh, and then uh, that they be used as the basis for the university taking some real steps in terms of um, diversifying or creating more equity on the campus. Part of Dr. Gordon's concern about removing the statues comes from what he's seen happen at the university in the past. In 2010, for example, Dr. Gordon was part of a committee that worked to rename Simpkins Hall, a dorm named after a former UT law professor who is a grand dragon of the KKK. The dorm is now named Creekside, and today, Dr. Gordon says, his students have no idea that the dorm ever had a previous name. And that's because we decided as a university that when we were challenging um, the existence of a dorm named after Simpkins, that what we would do would not, was not to contextualize it or tell a story or leave the story there or try to talk about how it is that, that this is our past, but this is our present in relation to it. We decided to... And part of this is because this is what the regents wanted to do. We decided to just name it Creekside. So it's now Creekside. So that tells no story at all. It's just by the creek. Right. Right. And that's, to me, a problem. It's a problem because Dr. Gordon believes that changing a name or removing a statue doesn't change history. History still leaves traces and structures the present. And if people don't know that history, it's harder for them to make sense of the present. And that's why, in addition to his many other responsibilities, Dr. Gordon has spent the last 20 years or so leading a tour around campus for anyone, students, faculty members, community members, anyone who wants to learn more about what he calls the racial geography of UT. At this point, the tour is a, it's a performance of a particular kind of politics and a particular kind of pedagogy, basically. Uh, and I do it because of my political commitment to to it. Uh, all along from the 90s, what I've 
thought about those statues that people need to know, not just the statues, but the names of the buildings and the landscape, et cetera, et cetera, is people need to be able to, to read better um, what it is that they experience every day. Um, that's, you know, I'm an anthropologist, so that's, that's a key aspect of anthropology, is an interpretation of the everyday. So as you move through an everyday landscape, the landscape that you move through has, has meaning. Uh, had meaning to the folks who construct it, and then it has meaning or, or not to the folks who move through it. So it's always been important to interpret that, but then the politics of it is to be able to have people recognize that um, the university has a particular kind of racial and gendered balance to it, um, and that one can read that through the landscape, and not only can one read it, but it also demonstrates kind of physically what the origins of the university are and what the areas that the university needs to overcome as it moves forward. Dr. Gordon's racial geography tour, not surprisingly, includes the Confederate statues. But it goes beyond them, too. Like Ben Wright and the team at the Briscoe Center, Dr. Gordon wants to help people make sense of those statues, understand them in context. But the context in this case is the broader landscape of the University of Texas campus. If Ben Wright is zooming in, Dr. Gordon is zooming out tracing patterns in the history and environment of the university that shed light not just on the statues, but on what they symbolize in this particular space. And if the Briscoe Center exhibit works by structuring the environment in which people encounter the Jefferson Davis statue, Dr. Gordon's tour works by taking people out so that they can walk around and experience the campus together. If you walk through uh, the university as a physical space, you can see how it is that racial inequity is sedimented into the, into the, the physical uh, space of the university, its architecture, its landscape, uh, its naming um, procedures. And that by seeing that, you can understand how race structured the physical space, that the, we, you know, the president is built uh, on top of that, uh, what's been, that's been racially sedimented into the physical space. And that then should uh, have us wonder how it is, or speculate how it is, that the racial past is also sedimented and baked into our social, organizational, cultural uh, reality contemporarily, and that we should be doing the same kinds of archaeologies and uh, excavations of um, that aspect of the university as the tour does in terms of trying to understand the, the physical aspect of the university. There's a slideshow version of the information, but Dr. Gordon prefers to walk. And the tour in its unabbreviated version can take several hours. Despite the length, it's in high demand. And Dr. Gordon speculates that he's been doing it now for 15 or 20 years. I think one of the first tours, if you want to talk, say that, that I, that I did was I was talking to someone, a case manager, program manager from the Rockefeller Foundation who was here from New York. I'm a New Yorker myself, and we were talking about, you know, the South and racism on campus, and I said, well, you know, the, the, the racial passive of campus is still very much with us, and began to talk about some of the things that I actually had in the slides, but I wasn't showing her a slideshow, so I said, well, let's walk out and I'll show you some of these things, and so I walked out and showed her some of these things, and things sort of progressed from there. In all the time since that first tour, things have changed. Buildings have been renamed, new statues have been built, 
and Dr. Gordon says he's still learning new things about campus all the time. But the tour format is accommodating. Dr. Gordon is always adjusting, adding on, changing the route. And the tour has never been about any one building or statue as much as the landscape and context. Because of that, Dr. Gordon says the South Mall will remain an important part of his tour, even with the statues gone. So the statues are gone, but there's still the stubs of the statues, and there's also this interesting plastic wrapping and black paper in front of it and all that. Right. So that's almost as interesting an artifact as the statues themselves. Uh, and most people, you know, when you take them by those places, they don't know who was there. Right. But they didn't know who those people were anyway um, before. They had a, a notion that there were Confederates down there, but they didn't know of all the Confederates or who was who or what was what. And so it's not that much different. Um, this is a, it's a geography tour, but it could be called as easily an archaeological one. It's about digging through the meanings of the, of the physical of material culture, and those things are all part of material culture now. Whether they're there or not, the traces of them are there, and, and one can, you know, dig through the meanings of the traces and reconstruct what was there and what they meant and why they were, you know, why they were put there and also why they were taken down. Dr. Gordon will also be paying close attention to what ends up happening to the places where the statues used to be, if anything. So one of the reasons I now start over here at the Barbara Jordan statue is I am making a bigger deal with how it is that the contemporary notions that the university has of who and what it is are represented also in um, have a physical expression also. And that physical expression is installed over the sediments of the past. Um, so they don't change it, they're built on it. Um, they're attempting to change the valence or change the meaning that's there, but they're definitely built on the path. And so uh, understanding you know, that those statutes were taken down and understanding um, why that was done and why some other choices weren't made is also an interesting kind of, it's not even kind of, an interesting indication of what the contemporary politics of the university are, which is that, well, we can't any longer have these been symbolic of, be symbolic of who we are, but what we'd rather do now is to kind of remove those references without necessarily doing anything to put anything more positive in its place. Mm -hmm. And that's true both physically, and also it's true in terms of the kind of social institutional aspects of the university. In other words, no matter what the university does or doesn't do, with the empty pedestals on the South Mall, the decision will tell a story. And Dr. Gordon will fold that story into his tour and put it in conversation with the rest of the landscape. It's an evolving process and a good reminder that the Confederate statues coming down mark an important moment in UT's history, but not an endpoint. As both Dr. Gordon and Ben Wright know well, the statues are very much still with us, and we still need, now as much as ever, to pay attention to what they indicate about our past and our present. This has been Death and Numbers, a podcast created and produced by the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. I'm Caroline Pinkston. Notes for the show, including links and photos, can be found on our website, humanitiesmediaproject.org. Our theme music is Enthusiast by Tours. Thank you for listening.